0: We are living in very dangerous times. I'm sure most of you have been reading the newspapers about a 24-year-old doctoral student who was characterized as being a brilliant science student. And he went haywire at midnight during a premiere of a Batman movie in Aurora, Colorado. And at the front of the theater, he used three weapons to shoot and kill 12 people and injure another 58 We're reminded by Dr. Scott Winnell's sermonette just two weeks ago on Protect Our Children. One witness of the tragedy in the theater said he looked like he was going to war. War against innocent men, women, and children, and teenagers. Human beings need to resist Satan, but this individual did not. As Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, The thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. And here was an individual who somehow we'll find out later what may turn the key in the 180 degrees in this person's mind to become a killer. We all have to resist Satan. We have to be on guard. We have to renew our minds with God's Spirit daily, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. So let's be on guard in this dangerous times in which we're living. While much of the Midwestern U.S. is suffering record drought and heat, uh, here in Charlotte, we've been enjoying some thunderstorms, and I've enjoyed walking in the rain. And we're now just a couple inches below a year-to-date average of rainfall here in the Charlotte area. But Russia and Japan and uh, China, as you may have heard in the world ahead, and other parts of the world are suffering devastating floods. God uses severe weather to get our attention at times. But what will it take for nations to heed God's warnings? Will some nations and peoples repent and change and respond to those warnings? Let's turn to Amos, the fourth chapter, Amos 4. God said that He would cause it to rain on one city and then not on another. and So there will be alternating floods and droughts here in Amos 4, verse 7. God says through the prophet Amos, I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. You've seen the photos in the newspapers of the dried up corn fields in the Midwest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied Yet you have not returned to Me, says the Lord. So even when God sends warnings, people will not respond. He said, Yet you have not returned to Me, says the Eternal. He uses that same expression here in verse 6, giving cleanness of teeth. These will happen in the future and happening in Sudan and other parts of Africa and other parts of the world. Then later on in verse uh, 9, the end of verse 9, "'Yet you have not returned to Me,' says the Lord." Then a plague, verse 10, "'Yet you have not returned to Me,' says the Eternal." Verse 11, "'Yet you have not returned to Me,' says the Eternal." So God is sending warning after warning after warning, saying, look, people, you need to change. You need to respond. When will you get the message? When will you change? We have a responsibility, and God's church and work have been giving that warning to our nations for decades. God is patient, and He continues to give warning after warning through weather, through wars, earthquakes, tsunamis, disease, epidemics, and other means. Yet it seems that hard-headed, stiff-necked people will not take the hint. So what does God say then? verse 12, of Amos 4. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do to this, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now, some have taken that to mean, oh, God is going to welcome you with open arms. No, Uh, this is a judgment God is giving. Prepare to meet your God. You're resisting me. You're not taking the warnings. Prepare to meet your God. We as God's people have a responsibility to give a continuous warning to our Western Western nations and to the whole world. Let's turn to Ezekiel the 22nd chapter. Ezekiel 22, we'll see a part of that responsibility given here. Ezekiel 22, starting with verse 29. God indicts Israel for its sins. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor Aditi, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Were there any leaders in Israel that would plead with God, No, please, withhold your judgment. We will change. We will repent. No, there were no such leaders. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord Eternal. By the way, I mentioned throughout the book of Ezekiel, uh, the print here is small caps, uh, G-O-D G-O-D, at the end of verse 31. That's the tetragrammaton uh the Yahweh uh, term. So it should be read not eternal God. This should be read Lord eternal throughout the whole book of Ezekiel. When you find the small uh, capital L-O-R-D, but it's small letters O-R-D, which is Adonai. So it's Adonai, Yahweh, which should be read uh, Lord eternal throughout the book of Ezekiel. But God gave that warning. We have a textbook for Living University in uh, one of our classes called Encountering the Old Testament. It makes this comment about standing in the gap. Ezekiel depicted God's people as a nation of uncleanness. He condemned prophets and priests alike for leading the people astray. The nation's sins grew worse and worse, but God could find no one among the leadership who would take a stand for Israel and beg God to forgive her. Continuing uh, here on page 414, Ezekiel used the imagery of plugging a breach in the city wall to make his point. When an enemy comes against a walled city, it must find a way to penetrate the wall. If the army succeeds in doing so, those defending the city must stop the advance or the city will fall. Brave men must answer the call to stand in the gap, but God could find no one to defend Jerusalem from his judgment, prophet, priest, or prince. So brethren, God wants us, his people, to stand in the gap. He wants us to stand up for his commandments, his righteousness, his truth, and his way of life. We need to stand up for the truth and build a wall of righteousness Against the enemies of oppression, wickedness, and evil. We need to stand in the gap. The title of the sermon today is Standing in the Gap. Turn back to Ezekiel 20 and verse 21. We again see a little of the background of God's judgment on Israel where he says in chapter 20 and verse 21, Notwithstanding the children rebelled against me, they did not walk in my statutes. They were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live in them. But they profaned my Sabbath. So what were their crimes? They were transgressing the fourth commandment as one of their crimes. Then I said, I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness, speaking historically. Then verse 30. Therefore... God says to Ezekiel say to the house of Israel thus says the Lord eternal are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers and committing holotry according to their abominations for when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire you defile yourselves with all your idols so another one of their problems was idolatry even to this day so shall i be inquired of you o house of Israel as i live says the Lord eternal I will not be inquired of you. So God's church has been standing in the gap for many different years. and God looked for a man and found none, he said. So the question today for you is how do we personally stand in the gap? What major ways do we stand for God's truth and for his way of life? Well, let's first understand that Ezekiel was God's watchman. I like think we all know that. That's one of our major missions as a church. Well, let's turn to Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel's commission is also mentioned in Ezekiel 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, but let's turn to Ezekiel 33. And, of course, he have the <clears throat> mission given to him. In verse 3, Ezekiel 33, the responsibility of a watchman when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be up upon himself, but he who takes warning shall save his life. Now, the responsibility of a watchman, is that just for one person? Dr. Meredith wrote in the Living Church News last year, May, June 2011, in his article, Cry Out for the Gifts of the Spirit, as follows. For we in the Living Church of God are called to perform a truly powerful work before the great tribulation and before Christ's return. If we do not truly warn our peoples of what lies just ahead... Then who will? Let us regularly focus on Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 7. For as Herbert W. Armstrong explained, this is our collective responsibility. This is our collective responsibility as the true church of God. Well, thank you, brethren, for your collective and wholehearted support of Christ's work and God's work in this mission. We really are having an effect, a positive effect, on many different people. And we just had a uh, listing of comments that have come in uh, that uh, Monica just uh, sent out uh, the other day. Uh, This one is from Trelawney, Jamaica. The Christian world owes a debt of tremendous gratitude to the men and women of tomorrow's world. So here's someone who said, Look, whoever you are, You people are producing tomorrow's world, says, the world owes a debt of tremendous gratitude to the men and women of tomorrow's world who through your sound teaching have prepared us for what is now clearly earth's final hour. We thank you for helping us, quote, to take in knowledge of the only true God and of his son, Jesus Christ, end of quote. Your prophecies are right on track, and because of this we can boldly face the future. We give thanks for that flame of fire which shines so brightly in men like the late Herbert W. Armstrong. Mr. Meredith goes on to write, notice especially verse 6. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. We, brethren, are striving to fulfill that watchman's mission today. But would the nation listen to the warning? said, well, they're not going to listen, so, you know, what's the use? Should we warn them anyway? No, we've just seen from God's instructions to Ezekiel that, no, they're not going to hear, but you warn them. You warn them anyway. You might turn back to uh, Ezekiel, the third chapter, and just to see what God said would be the response. Ezekiel, the third chapter, verse 7. Will they listen? Ezekiel 3, verse 7. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like an adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. So God told Ezekiel to go to the house of Israel and warn them. But at the time that God told him to do this, the ten tribe House of Israel had already been in captivity for about 120 years. I hope you've read our booklet on the United States and Great Britain and Prophecy. Uh, Mr. John O'Gwynn writes on on page 6 under the Ezekiel's commission, writes the following, quote, Notice that Ezekiel's commission set him as a watchman not to his own people, the house of Judah, but to the northern ten tribes of the house of Israel. Judah was then only partially in captivity. The destruction of Jerusalem itself lay several years in the future. But the house of Israel had been transported into a strange land, hundreds of miles from Ezekiel, more than 120 years before. What would be the point of warning these people already captive of impending invasion and captivity? Mr. O'Gwin concludes, Clearly, Ezekiel's message was not for the Israel of his day. God was not more than a century later in warning them of a future punishment. He wasn't a hundred years late. That would make no sense at all. Besides, Ezekiel never had a chance to deliver his message in person to the house of Israel. We thus can see that his message was for the end time, and was written down and preserved for delivery by God's faithful servants Today. That's from page six of the United States and Great Britain in prophecy. Again, how can we stand in the gap? What major ways do we stand up for God's truth and way of life? The remainder of the sermon I want to give you three ways that we stand in the gap. Number one, we must be men and women of strong spiritual character, godly examples to the world. And I'll repeat these as we go through them. Number two, We must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and warn our Western nations of the coming tribulation. Number three, we stand in the gap as intercessors. We pray for our nations, our leaders, and our people with intercessory prayer. So first, let's take a look at godly examples. Matthew, the fifth chapter, if you'll turn there. We must be men and women of strong spiritual character, godly examples to the world. is a key way that we stand in the gap. Matthew, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So we're the salt of the earth. Uh we had some uh, I won't, <laughs> soup the other night, <clears throat> and my wife asked me, Well, how's the soup? I said, Well, um, it could use some salt. So you are the salt of the earth. It does add something, a spice of life. It's also a preservative. Verse fourteen, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. One of the sevenfold mission statements that I mentioned in a recent sermon was mission number four that Dr. Meredith outlined was, quote, be examples to the church of God and to the world of Christ's way of life. That's one of our mission statements. Be examples to the church of God and to the world of Christ's way of life. Salt is a preservative. It adds taste and spice to life. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 9 in verse 50, Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. You read through, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, you find the core of a spiritual application of the Ten Commandments and of God's way of life. John R. W. Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, page 68, mentions this. Quote, A Christian's character is described in the Beatitudes, and a Christian's influence, as defined in the salt and light metaphors, are organically related to one another. Our influence depends on our character, but the Beatitudes set an extremely high and exacting standard. Setting examples to the world, we have a high standard. And sometimes we look to the world for examples of fine character or strong characteristics that we may want to emulate or to follow. I just some of you have heroes, they may not be heroes as such, but you you follow their careers, maybe in the past, Michael Jordan and uh, maybe Venus Williams uh, or Serena Williams, uh, tennis stars for the United States, or uh, Tiger Woods, of course, with the Olympics coming up in uh, in August in uh, London, and of course they're going to have to be careful of terrorism and attacks there with uh, already admitted poor security arrangements. But from Jamaica, where uh, I gave a TWSP in January, uh, Usain Bolt is the uh, world's fastest runner for the 100 meter. Uh, he had a colleague that just beat him uh, here recently. But we may look to some of these men and women, musicians, movie stars, businessmen, polit- politicians. I don't know if we looked at politicians so much, for example. Military leaders, statesmen. But we want to follow, of course, Christ's example. Let's turn to Matthew 4, or Matthew 5. Just turn back a page, perhaps. Matthew 4 and verse 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So we have to follow Christ daily. Uh, John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So we have an example to follow. and At the same time, we have to set an example to others. Jesus said in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth and the life. We treasure the truth, we obey the truth, and we live the truth. That's how we stand in the gap. There were some former church members misapplied the scripture of standing in the gap. They followed dissidents who fell away from the truth, saying that they were standing in the gap when there was no gap. And they were building, as Ezekiel refers to it, untempered mortared walls. I won't uh, turn there right now, but they were building walls and plastering them with untempered mortar. That's in Ezekiel 13, verses 1 through 16. I'll just read Ezekiel 22, verse 28. We had read verses 29 earlier. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar. Seeing false visions and divining lies for them saying, thus says the Lord eternal when the eternal had not spoken. So again, in this deceptive age, we have to be on guard against deceivers, against false doctrine, against those who want you to t- hang on to the twigs of the tree rather than the trunk of the truth and the trunk of the tree. And Jesus said in John 8 verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So we have to make sure that we are reading the Bible every day. Have you read the Bible yet since sunset? I hope that you do. You open it up personally and read it. Of course, some of you are reading it electronically. Uh, Dr. Meredith says, well, I guess that's okay, but it's better to read a physical book and mark it up. I guess you could mark your electronic copy somehow but it's it's better to have that organic connection read your bible mark it up i've been reading through the nrsv and kings and chronicles it's just a whole new section and marking as i go and it helps you to have that contact so jesus said if you abide in my word you are my disciples indeed you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free God's people, true Christians, must be men and women of integrity. It's a major key of being a godly example. But what scripture would you turn to to determine integrity? Psalm 15 certainly is one of those scriptures that would describe the character that we should have and to reflect the characteristic of integrity. Psalm 15 Eternal, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue. There are a lot of backbiters these days. Nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the eternal. The fear of the Lord, again, is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.9. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, a man of his word. And sometimes you have to monitor your word. You know, did I make a promise? Did I? Am I going to fulfill that promise? Verse 5 of Psalm 15. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does all these things shall never be moved. It's a good description of integrity. I focus on that because uh, when we were in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, for the Feast of Tabernacles in 2004, uh, we were given a little uh, framed picture Uh, by uh, Mr. and Mrs. Sheldon Munson, who was a coordinator at that time, of Integrity. And I had a picture of people walking across vicariously, well, not vicariously, but precariously, across a rope bridge. And the picture is described as, Faced with a daunting trek, an intrepid outdoorsman relies on inner strength to carry him across a precarious bridge. Well, I don't know if Mr. Pyle would mind mentioning me, but he recently uh, went down the zip line, the longest zip line in the world, in, uh, in Alaska. I'm sure that took a little courage to do that. But the message on that photo says, The highest courage is to dare to be yourself in the face of adversity, choosing right over wrong, ethics over convenience. And truth over popularity. These are the choices that measure your life. Travel the path of integrity without looking back, for there is never a wrong time to do the right thing. Well, Psalm 15 certainly describes integrity, and that's what God has called us to do. Some men in the world have described standing in the gap very eloquently. One such man was Senator Frank Carlson, a former governor of Kansas, who was a congressman and U.S. senator. And I remember, I have a copy in my files uh, from the U.S. News and World Report, July 1, 1968. It, uh, as I recall, it was at a congressional breakfast among congressmen in which he made this classic statement and presentation. It was titled, Wanted a Man. A man who will stand. Now, as I read this, you women can also say, women in this as well. Wanted a man, a man who will stand. We have had men in both ancient and modern history who have had the courage to take a stand and stand firm. In Ezekiel 22, verse 3, the prophet says, And I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Senator Carlson continues, God is searching for men who are unique, thoroughly secure in Him and filled to running over with His Spirit. He wants to strengthen them. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. Men who are not for sale... Men who are honest, sound from center to circumference, true to the heart's core. Men with conscience as steady as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right if the heavens totter and the earth reels. Men who can tell the truth and look the world right in the eyes. Men who will neither brag nor run. Men who will neither flag nor flinch. Men who can have courage without shouting it. Men in whom the courage of everlasting life runs still, deep, and strong. Men who know their message and tell it. Men who know their place and fill it. Men who know their business and attend to it. Men who will not lie, shirk, or dodge. Men who are not too lazy to work, nor too proud to be poor. Men who are willing to eat what they have earned and wear what they have paid for. Men who are not ashamed to say no with emphasis and who are not ashamed to say, I can't afford it. God is looking for men. He wants those who can unite together around a common faith, who can join hands in a common task, and who have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God, give us such men. God has given us such men and women, and it's called the Church of God. It's God's faithful, genuine, converted, deeply dedicated men and women. God has given us such men, but we need more men and women. Senator Carlson didn't know it at the time, but you and I are called to fulfill that mission. I might mention also that Mr. League emphasized in his sermon last week the need for courage and for faith. And if you missed his sermon, you ought to hear it. It's called The First Requirement of a Christian, in which he was emphasizing the first two great commandments. So God is looking for those who will stand in the gap. We have uh, several Sermons on this particular point of godly examples, number 137, The Power of Example, number 555, Stand for the Truth, and number 615, I believe by Mr. League, Who Will Stand? So one major way of standing the gap is to be examples to the Church of God and to the world and of Christ's way of life. We must live as men and women of faith, men and women of integrity, and we must be godly examples in an ungodly world. A second way of standing in the gap is to preach and warn. We must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and warn our Western nations of the coming great tribulation. Turn to Matthew 24. You're all familiar with that. You know that by heart. Matthew 24 and verse 14 Christ is giving a prophecy for the end time, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Of course, he gives us an exhortation in the previous verse, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. That sixth law of success of perseverance. Let's turn to Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation three. We preach on our responsibilities to fulfill these missions, but it's always good to review them. Verse 7 of Revelation 3. And to the angel of church in Philadelphia write, Revelation 3, verse 7. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, He who opens, and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So it's a little flock. It's a flock that isn't strong physically or in other material ways. But the characteristics that you and I need to have as Philadelphians is to keep God's Word and not deny His name and, of course, to walk through the open doors. I did give an update in the co-worker letter that was just mailed out. By the way, my wife and I received our co-worker letter on Thursday. How many of you received the coworker letter? see your hands. Okay, good. Looks like about 70.3%. Very good. So... I did give an update, but I do want to review some of those statistics, because it's very, very encouraging to realize that we, on July 10th at 6.30 in the morning, Tuesday morning, went on BET, Black Entertainment Network, which reaches 80 million television households. And we also, as Mr. Pyle reports, are now in North America, reaching 116 million of the 127 million television households in North America, or 91% of the television households in North America. So that's very encouraging. Of course, we're on, and have been on, WGN, CW Plus, ION Network. We're on the uh, channel in Hong Kong, going into China. And then, just after I'd written the coworker letter, we hadn't had a confirmation, but uh, Mr. Pyle confirmed that last Tuesday after we'd written a letter that we are now going to begin on the church channel Saturday night, August 4th at 10.30 p.m. The church channel is a subs- sub-channel of uh, TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network, and it reaches 60 million in the United States, but it also reaches 120 million in Europe, the Middle East, Western Russia, and North Africa. So that's very encouraging, and that network just added another 325,000 television households in the Philippines. And we've not really been reaching the Philippines uh, through media very effectively, so that's very encouraging. That begins Saturday night, August 4th at 1030, 2012. In this case, the sermon is heard in 2013. Also, of course, I mentioned the matter of uh, in the coworker letter about the Apple iStore. I'll just read from the letter. We are pleased to announce that users of Apple iPad, iPhone, and iPod touch devices can now download Living Church of God booklets from the Apple iBookstore. You can find the booklets by title, author, category. Download them absolutely free of charge for viewing them with iBooks, with the iBooks app. So Dr. Fall's booklet on successful parenting became the second most popular booklet in a very short period of time in the section for free books on the subject of parenting. Then other popular booklets were Dr. Meredith's Christian Baptism and Mr. O'Gwynn's Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled. And at this point in time, we're up to about 17 that is, bookstores in 17 of the 32 country-specific iBookstores uh, have downloaded our free booklets of people who've gone to those particular bookstores. The other area that uh, we mentioned in the uh, co-worker letter is Roku. Uh, Mr. Wyatt herself has been working with that, and uh, we appreciate the hard work that Mr. Tom Bach has been doing to make all of these high-definition programs to go on Roku. Roku is a device that you attach to your television set, and since early June, more than 6,000 households around the world have installed the Tomorrow's World Roku channel, with hundreds more installing it every week. Roku allows us to bring high-definition video of our telecasts in English, French, and Spanish— even to those who do not have over-the-air cable access to our program. So, we want you, if you can, to join Tomorrow's World Roku channel, and if you can give it a five-star rating, that will increase its popularity and potential for reaching many more thousands with a true gospel. And another media outlook for preaching the gospel is Twitter. Uh, Mr. Soselka... Reports and another exciting milestone, Tomorrow's World Twitter account now has more than 15,000 followers. And then, of course, there are the special presentations, the Tomorrow's World special presentations. Uh, we have nine this weekend. Uh, Dr. Winnale just gave one in Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, was scheduled to give one in Adelaide, which I presume he's already given since they're almost uh, a day in, in advance of us, many hours ahead of us in time. And, of course, you can look at the back of the church bulletin. Uh, Here's today's church bulletin, and on the back you have all the special presentations. Uh, Dr. Fall will be giving the follow-up to Mr. Rod McNair's uh, special presentation last week, today in Sacramento, California, tomorrow in Reno. Mr. John McNair in uh, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, next Sabbath. And uh, Mr. Rod McNair in Augusta, Georgia, next Sabbath. So... Again, uh, be looking at the church bulletin and following our special presentations. Uh, Through June of this year, 2012, uh, the United States' attendance is up by 3.4%, and the attendance internationally is up 6.3%. So God is blessing the work, and individuals are finding the truth. Here's another comment that came in from Lexington, Kentucky. God revealed to me that the mark of the beast was Sunday-keeping. I prayed God would show me where to go. I knew I had to find a church that kept the Sabbath. I went to a Sabbath-keeping church for seven months, but they didn't have the truth I was searching for. Then I realized I would never find anyone that preached the real truth I was seeking, but the church that taught me that truth 50 years ago. I had thought all the splintered-off groups were wrong, But as I was listening one Sunday morning, they were preaching on a subject I was very interested in. I found the address of Dr. Meredith's ministry and found out where to go. When I walked into the church in Berea, Kentucky, I knew I had found my way home. I was overwhelmed and almost cried. Here were all old friends whom I had known before, and they welcomed me with open arms. By the end of the day, I had already made plans to go to the Feast of Tabernacles this fall in Chattanooga, Tennessee. God is good and has led me home where I belong. Thank you, God. <laughs> and here's another one uh, from Conyers, uh, Georgia. Of course, we have not only the telecast and social media, but we have Tomorrow's World Magazine and the booklets. And this one man from Conyers, Georgia writes, I have read three of your magazines for 2011, cover to cover, along with looking up the scriptures. Wow, I've been blown away. In fact, I'd love to be placed on your subscription list in order to have my own magazine. Thank you for your present and future help in assisting me with my growth, knowledge, and appreciation for God's true spoken word. So a second way of standing in the gap is to preach, warn, and witness. And Christ is opening major doors for preaching the gospel through television, the internet, and social media, and through numerous special presentations. So keep praying for more laborers in the harvest, which I encourage you to do frequently. And you know that scripture, Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send more laborers Into the harvest. I know many of you have been doing that, and we're thankful for those who are joining the group. God is calling and helping us to do the work and fulfill the mission. So thank you, brethren and friends around the world, for your part in standing in the gap. The third way of standing in the gap is to diligently pray intercessory prayers. Uh, most commentaries, when they refer to Ezekiel standing in the gap, refer to someone standing as interceding for people, as did Abraham when he pleaded with the Lord to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. If there were at least ten righteous people, where there with obviously there weren't, so God had to send angels to get Lot and his family out of the out of the place. But Abraham interceded. Moses. Interceded. We may read a section of that scripture. And Aaron interceded for the people as well. Here's just a, a sample of one commentary, uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary <clears throat> on the uh, subject of standing in the gap. That is, the breach, uh, Psalm 106, verse 23. Image for interceding between the people and God. As Abraham did, Genesis twenty verse seven, and Moses, Exodus thirty-two verse eleven, and Aaron, who stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed, number sixteen, number sixteen verse forty-eight. What I've read that scripture before, and just a dramatic illustration of intercession. Here, this plague was taking place, and Moses told Aaron, "Run out there." With a censer, and stand between the living and the dead, and it plagued it stopped the plague. He interceded, came between the plague and the living people, and the plague was stopped. It's one way of, of interceding. but First Timothy 2 gives us our responsibility of interceding in prayer. First Timothy, the second chapter. It's very unusual. I haven't even looked at my watch. Okay, a little time there. Good. Got a couple hours more. First Timothy 2. Therefore, the Apostle Paul writes, I exhort, exhort first of all, that supplications, repeated requests, deep heartfelt requests, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God expects us to pray for men who are in authority. We pray for President Barack Obama, Vice President Biden, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, we in North Carolina pray for Governor Beverly Perdue, and so we pray that we can live a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And we have someone who intercedes for us. Now well, let's turn back there to Hebrews the seventh chapter, Hebrews seven, and what an encouragement this is, one of the Encouraging scriptures when you're not feeling so optimistic and positive. Hebrews 7, verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. That is the contrast between Melchizedek, Christ the high priest, and human priests. Verse 24. But he, because he continues forever as an unchangeable Priesthood; Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he, that is, Christ our high priest, always lives to make intercession for them. You have a great high priest. You need to thank God for Christ is your high priest, because he knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be in severe, extreme pain. He knows the frustrations of human nature and the downward pulls. He was tempted in all point, points like we were, but yet without sin. You have a great high priest who intercedes for you. Now, when Ezekiel was writing and God is saying there's no one there to stand in the gap. There have been some in the past government leaders who have stood in the gap, who have interceded and asked God to deliver their nation. Abraham Lincoln was one of those. You've read some of his proclamations before, but this was the proclamation of April 30th, 1863 a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer in the United States of America. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God, let me just stop there, as I pointed out before. Would the Senate today say such a thing? If it can't, Where are we in relation to God and to the hope that we'll be delivered from our problems nationally? Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations, has by a resolution required the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation and whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions, in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. What a remarkable preamble to this proclamation. I'd like to put it in blazing lights in front of Congress. And here, Congress, would you please read this? He goes on to say We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God, we have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Too proud Too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, power capitalized, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Though God did preserve the nation through its terrible time of the Civil War, but it was a time of a petition by the Senate and by the President of the United States for God's intervention for the people and for the nation. We know the case of Jonah. Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. That's Jonah 3 and verse 5. The only example that we have of a nation responding to one of God's prophets in repenting, God delayed the evil that he was going to bring upon them in the judgment. Moses interceded for the people. And you wonder, why would Moses ever intercede for these complaining, murmuring, hard-necked, stiff-necked people? Turn back to Deuteronomy, the ninth chapter, the classic example of intercessory prayer. Deuteronomy, the ninth chapter. We want to take the time. It would be great to read the whole chapter, but we'll skim through part of it here, starting with verse 13. Furthermore, the Eternal spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, indeed, they are a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9, verse 14. God says to Moses, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. What would you say? Yes, Lord. They <laughs> say, Here are these stiff-necked people. And, of course, God is inviting him not to let him because he's saying, let me. You know, God says... Moses let me. Okay, I'll let you, God. No. Moses intervened for the people. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, where the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Eternal, your God, made yourselves a molded calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Eternal had commanded you, and broke the, broke the commandments, broke the tablets, then fell down before the eternal and fasted another 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Middle of verse 18. He said, The Lord was angry with Aaron, verse 20, and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron. So he gave an intercessory prayer and saved Aaron's life, for that matter. Verse 25. Thus I prostrated myself before the eternal. 40 days and 40 nights I kept prostrating myself because the eternally said He would destroy you. Have you ever prostrated yourself? That means lying flat on the ground, flat on the floor, your face flat on the ground. You might want to consider that if you haven't. Of course, we can pray standing up, walking, sitting in bed. Of course, mainly praying on our knees if you don't have arthritis. But what did Moses do? Verse 26. Therefore, I prayed to the Eternal and said, "O Lord Eternal, do not destroy your people and your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin." That sounds almost hard to do. Don't look on their their wickedness and their sin lest the land from which you brought us out say should say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out by your mighty power and your outstretched hand. So Moses stood in the gap for hard-headed, stiff-necked people. And there will become a time in the future. We have already, at times of tragedy, times of challenge, given prayers of intercession. But let's turn to Joel, the second chapter. Joel, the second chapter. And this is the context. It's the day of the Lord, the end time course, there have been types of the day of the Lord historically when God brought judgments on various nations. But he says here in Joel, the second chapter, Joel 2 and verse 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the eternal weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. I've done that times, time and time again when we're going through disruptions in the church and splits. Spare your people, O Lord. I hope you've prayed that. We will be praying that in the future when we face even greater challenges and disruptions. We pray not in the church, but other external disruptions. And do not give your heritage to your reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? Of course, he says that you need to turn to me, verse 12, with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the eternal, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, And relents from doing harm, so God will intervene for us. Those are some examples of intercessions. We had a uh, commentary by Mr. Mark Arsenault, an elder up in our Mississauga office in Canada near Toronto, uh, who wrote a commentary on our website Saturday, December seventeenth, two thousand eleven. Are You Standing in the Gap? was the title of Mr. Arsenault's commentary. He writes, Today, Jesus Christ stands in the gap for us as our intercessor and great high priest. Are we willing to stand in the gap for our brethren who are suffering? James tells us the prayer of the faithful avails much. James 5, verse 16. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2.1 Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. As we think of those around us who are suffering serious illnesses, Mr. Arsenal writes, are we offering our fervent and impassioned prayers of intercession with every fiber of our being? If you need a reminder of what God can do in the lives of those who seek Him wholeheartedly, read or reread, our booklet, Does God Heal Today?, and watch our Tomorrow's World telecast, God Heals. In a co-worker letter about our responsibility of standing in the gap, Mr. Meredith wrote <clears throat> in a February eighteenth, two 2004, co-worker letter, Brethren, we can be the man, the instrument, whom God will use to help protect and wake up those who are willing to listen. As faithful servants of the living God, we can and must cry aloud, as God commanded, to show our peoples their sins and distinctly warn them where they are headed before it is too late. By opening our minds and helping us in this work to understand, God is clearly setting before us this priceless opportunity And privilege. So a third way of standing in the gap is intercessory prayer. God has called us to train as kings and priests. Priests teach God's way of life, but they also intercede for the people. We need to intercede for our nations, for our peoples, for our brethren. And as the salt of the earth, as the light of the world, we're witnessing God's truth. We're setting an example that will be remembered even in the white throne judgment. Because what we do today, we may seem as insignificant. But dozens, thousands, maybe millions in the white throne judgment will be told of your prayer that God heard because of your prayer, blessed those individuals or groups of people. So what we do today has lasting value, lasting effect, eternal effect. God will be able to tell those in the white throne judgment that He blessed them because of your standing in the gap, because of your prayers. That is, if you have the faith to believe that God does hear your intercessory prayer. And remember, as we read earlier, that Christ, our high priest, continually intercedes for us. You'll turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter, Matthew 24. The prophet Ezekiel warned the house of Israel that it had already been in captivity more, more than 120 years. That warning is for us today. God looked for leaders to stand in the gap, and he found none. But we as God's church are called to stand in the gap, and we've been striving to fulfill that responsibility for decades. As time moves closer to the kingdom of God and the seventh trumpet announcement, We can be men and women who stand in the gap. We must be men and women of strong spiritual character, godly examples to the world, men and women of integrity. We must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and warn the nations of the coming great tribulation. We must preach, warn, and witness. And we must pray for our nations, for our leaders, for our people with intercessory prayer. We must stand in the gap with our prayers. Well, how do we know that God's church is succeeding in its mission? Well, Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell would never prevail against God's church. It's vibrant. It's alive. It's doing His work. And Christ is alive And he's working through converted men and women who are standing in the gap. Many are being turned to righteousness. And Jesus said in Matthew, the 24th chapter, that unless there were an elect, there would no flesh, no life be left alive. And unless those days were shortened, verse 22, Matthew 24, No flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Because there are men and women with integrity, men and women who are standing in the gap, who are standing up for the truth and exemplifying the truth. True, genuine, faithful Christians are the elect. So, brethren, thank God that he is using people who are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He's using people to be godly examples that are preaching, warning, and witnessing. They're standing in the gap with your prayers, our prayers, all of our prayers. Senator Carlson once stated, God is looking for men. He wants those who can unite together about a common faith, who can join hands in a common task. And who have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, God give us such men. Brethren, God is looking for men and women to stand in the gap. We've all accepted that responsibility. So let's fulfill that responsibility with faith, confidence, and courage. Let's all stand in the gap.